Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. I've seen Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gates. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. The spirit of our project is connection. We are connected, whether strangers or family. There are no boundaries anymore between countries or religions. The internet has changed all that. As we leave our tribalism, our fortress mentality behind, we realize that sharing is more natural than hoarding. Sharing information, sharing decisions, sharing responsibility. This is a human act. We all take some of the burden when there's someone in need. And the more people that put their shoulder to it, the lighter it becomes. Until what would have crushed one of us is almost nothing for all of us. He's so charming and so distant at the same time. Like he's present with me here in this place and also diffused over 10,000 wires, all digitized, escaped into the world. I kind of want to make dirty sex with him all over the place. Fast sex. Urgent, the kind you can't wait to rip open. The kind of sex that puts a baby in you. Baby sex. Bells ringing and angels swooping around. And then I'll have a baby, me and Billy. It's like I already know it. Billy's like a comet I can grab onto. Like a hot air balloon with space in the basket. He's got corners I can hide in where I don't have to say a word. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, just home from vacation, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 1st of July, and this is episode number 143, Welcome to Launch Day. Thank you. Today on the program, we're sharing 42 minutes with Lydia Netzer, author of the New York Times notable book from 2012, Shine, Shine, Shine. This past June, she released a digital novella considering the new internet normal called Everybody's Baby. Yet today, we are helping her launch her latest novel, How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky, published by St. Martin's Press. Entertainment Weekly calls it a lovely summer valentine, and Booklist pronounces it fabulous in a starred review. Black holes, lucid dreams, scheming mothers, and star-crossed lovers collide on the sparkling shores of Lake Erie. Available now. More information about the book and her work can be found on her website at lydianetzer.com. It really is a treat to have her today on launch day, and we welcome her 
Hi, Lydia. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm very well. Thanks. <laughs> you bet. Thank you. Last week, I asked Elena Graydon a series of diagnostic questions to find out if she was infected with the word flu. Okay. Today, I hear that you have this new app called Greater Than by Billy Bream. Right. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps we should ask the whole internet those same questions. Okay. <laughs> well, I I uh, I actually don't have that app. I oh. made it up in my brain, but I didn't. I don't have the skills to bring it to life. I tried to get my husband to do it, but he was busy with his silly job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the app that that Billy Bream, a character in your novella everybody's baby invented well billy is a big believer in crowdsourcing and the hive brain and um the interconnectedness of of everyone's ideas and so he he created this app called greater than um where just two things show up on your screen and you swipe right or left depending on which one you think is better so you can you can use it um to present choices or you can use it to just sit and judge, you know, choice after choice after choice. And you could use it in a practical way, like you could say, hey, which is better, you know, this restaurant or that restaurant or this big, this hotel chain or that hotel chain. Or you could, you know, make it more philosophical and say, you know, which is better, contracted regard or um so the but the idea would be that um you know the the, the collective would have helpful information that you could either agree with or not that that it's useful it's useful for someone like him who's very a plugged in citizen of the internet to be aware of um what the communal opinion is it's interesting too with computers it seems like it's always a binary choice right Yes, because anything else is too hard to fit on an iPhone screen. And anything else requires caveats and discussion and subtlety and a nuanced understanding of the world, and that's just not something you can swipe, you know? <laughs> you can't swipe nuance. You can swipe yes or no. You can swipe up or down. You can click like or dislike, but, you know, it depends really isn't an option. But I don't know. I don't I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, I think as long as we, um, obviously, in our personal connections and in our own brains, we're still processing things in a, in a more complicated way and layering things in a more interesting way. I think the binary, I think being forced to make binary choices is actually interesting. And, um, and that's something about kind of our pop culture, like voting or, um, you know, voting on things online or voting on things, up, you know, up or down. That, that I, I think that forces a kind of intellectual rigorousness that you can often avoid by saying, well, it really depends on the situation, which we all accept. But you know what I mean? I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to think of it that way once in a while. Do you think – so that it's interesting because the answer – in that moment is true, but that isn't necessarily the answer. I'm wondering about this and our ideas of certainty. Do you think that somehow our technology is communicating more of a quantum state as as opposed to like a classical physics state? Yes, absolutely. It's definitely of the moment. 
it's definitely of the moment. I mean, I think absolutism and just the idea that there can be an answer um, is something we can't really relate to anymore. Just like, you know, you can get many different versions of a story. You can get many different um, reports of an event. There's our idea of truth, I think. Our idea of truth, I think, has exploded. And our idea of opinion is, is right behind. I mean, it's, it's not, um, it's not one thing forever. There's no more stone tablets. It's, it's constantly in flux and it's, you know, having those moment by moment. I'm thinking of, um, like, you know, status bars, like on TV shows or something, it's, um, they, they're the new thing to try to make people watch live television is to be, you know, there's an app where you can vote. You can say, do you like this person? You can say if this person said something stupid. And you can see it changing in real time, you know, like, is Pablo evil or good, you know? <laughs> Click left for evil. Click right for good, you know? If you can get it all the way to the left, then Pablo will fall into a pit of fire. Then... You know, it changes. Pablo says one thing, it goes to the left. Pablo says another thing, it goes to the right. It's like, that's the perfect illustration of this sort of, the truth being in flux. Like, at that point, does Pablo really matter? You know, does does Pablo have an an essence? No. Pablo's only a a graph representing our opinions of Pablo. But it also communicates our desire to participate it seems like, with the narratives that we're all weaving at the same time. Yes, and I think that's what um, that's what my character, Billy, really loves about the Internet and um, all of the media that he's kind of, you know, he's an early adopter of every new thing. And he loves that sense of being engaged, not waiting to be told something, but, you know, making that opinion happen and, um, and being so connected, being connected and engaged, which is funny because, you know, you see, um, I, I see images of people looking at phones and it's kind of meant to represent that people are disconnected from each other and disengaged. And I, I guess that's true in a way. Um, but I, I think you can look at it a different way. This is, this is a higher order of engagement. It's that they're participating in a, a different level of conversation and something that's going on when you start to put your, when you start to row in that water, you know, you kind of have to keep your oars in. Um, and that's definitely the level that Billy participates full on. You know, he's always got a tablet and a phone and he's kind of listening to you with one ear while his eyes are listening to something else. And that kind of multiplicity of conversation, that, that, that multiple levels of text going on, oral, you know, watching um, the text you're creating yourself in different ways. You might be speaking to someone while you're texting someone else. That to me is not horrifying or, you know, you know, that's not a degeneration of our culture. To me, that's exciting. It's like, wow, look at us evolving and how many different ways we can communicate. And granted, I mean, a lot of it is used to 
saying stupid things, but then a lot of the more class, more traditionally valued language venues are used to say stupid things too. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean they're wrong. When I was looking looking the novella up on the internet, I stumbled upon something really interesting and clever. Everybody's Baby, the title of your novella, also is the title mm-hmm. of a film. Did you mm-hmm. did and was was that partially in, intentional on your part? No, it wasn't. Um because in some ways that's kind of the start of the internet with this larger story that we participate in. Right. With baby Jessica down the well. Right. Yes, it didn't occur to me until later it wasn't our intention to do that, but it was I mean, that was definitely a real moment in our history of where our collective came together in a a digital way over a real event. And so it didn't, I was, I was, it was an interesting coincidence, but the publisher picked that title. Oh, my title was lullaby for a digital world, which I think they thought was a little too, too foo and weird. Could you say that again? What did you say? My title? Yeah. What was it? Was lullaby, lullaby for a Digital World. Oh. And um, that ended up being the title of the, the documentary, documentary that um, that Johnny Fan made of the birth and everything when he was documenting this crowdsourcing baby. Do you know if if there's been any kickstarted babies since you created this project? Well, I actually had seen a few. I know there are several that are the 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 person that actually got me thinking about this um was someone who it wasn't Kickstarter, it was another crowdsourcing site, but it was um it was a couple and they were raising money for in vitro and they didn't have any perks like you can cut the cord, you can name the baby. Which is scary. <laughs> well, but I I was thinking when I saw that site and somebody had passed it to me like, oh, ha, ha, look at this. And I saw it and I was like, well, what do I get? You know, if I fund your game, I'm going to get a beta, you know, password. If I fund your movie, I'm going to get my name in the credit. So what do I get if I fund your baby? You know, is it going to like come and cut my lawn? Do I get to like own its ankle or something like What's <laughs> what are you selling here? Just just you guys having a baby? I don't care about that. So I thought, like, what would it be? Um, what would it look like if people actually offered perks and stuff? And and that's where that's where my book came from. But yes, people I do people crowdsource their adoption. People crowdsource their um, IVF. All kinds of things. An interesting little echo I found also too was this um you, you, Jenna you know part of her backstory is you know her own relationship to her mother and how that she's mm-hmm. going to be different but she she does a line eventually when she has her baby she says I will never let her go and that just kind of had this echo with that book never let me go which is also about mm-hmm. cutting edge technology and the future and interfacing in a human way yeah. with a society that is really on the frontier of becoming something else sure did you I yeah mean, um 
Yeah, that was totally intentional. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've read that novel. Um, I don't know. There may have been. I I often do kind of um, include little references in my in my uh, books, and uh, so that. But it, you know, then again, it might have been Depeche Mode, so I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to be a certain age to get that one. Well, that would be my age. It's my age too. So, speaking of which, how's the band? How's the band? Uh oh. For a couple of years. Oh no. Singer and bass player moved to Florida. So we are no longer a band, Aww. and um, both of our kids. We we started out. You know, my my son plays the violin, and I had a, another homeschooling mom friend whose um, daughter was a vocalist. And we started out the band as a way to um, kind of connect with our kids on a different practice and saying that's sharp or you're going too fast. So just letting letting them kind of cut loose, like letting them improv, letting them create their own stuff, and and level out the you know frame. So it was awesome. It was really fun, and um, we did some recording. We did some live shows, and then the, they moved, and it was very sad. And then our, now our kids are 14. We started a band when the kids were 10. Um, our kids are now 14. I don't know if they would really want to be in a band with their moms anymore. <laughs> it's not quite as cool as it used to be. And without them, we're nothing because they were the most talented part of the band. <laughs> so it was fun, though. The track that ends up on the audio version of Shine, 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 there, there's a couple songs. But yes. the, the violin riff, that's your son? then yeah mm-hmm. that's my son when he that, what, yeah when he was 10 he and he has an electric violin and he wrote his own part and um and the vocalist is um the little the is her name is Lorla. i think your capsule is is uh, moving towards the dark side of the moon we keep phasing in and out on your audio oh okay Sorry. <laughs> and with that, maybe we should talk about robots and autism because it seems like a natural step <laughs> to go from this internet connectivity. So in in the book Shine Shine Shine, you explore robots and autism. Do you Yeah. Do you think which which one is the kind of leading that you know, it's like the chicken and egg question. Do you think the internet is causing us to be more autistic, or is it just these two things are happening simultaneously? Well, I don't know. I think this is one of those things where I hope I live forever so I get to find out what happens with all of this, because I'm so curious. It seems very clear to me that a person with autistic symptoms um, is well prepared for the online environment, for a coding environment, um, for the uh, scripted and 
you know, literally coded way that computers interact with each other. And also for space travel, you know, it's, um, it's funny to me, um, like how, how people try to kind of draw the line between, well, normal people and autistic people and this is autistic and this is not autistic. Like if you're autistic, you don't make facial expressions or whatever. Um, but then they'll sit down and write an email and write, LOL, 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 exclamation point, exclamation point. Meanwhile, their face is like completely blank. <laughs> like, well, you actually just expressed emotion without a facial expression. <laughs> yeah, you, you created a script, you created a code to represent your emotion um, without actually, you know, bursting with pleasure all over your face. So I don't know. I think it's something that's emerging there's so many different opinions. I hate to say, like this is I know it's evolution, you know, this is this is our digital mind emerging. Um but I certainly Are you see are you so sure many... it's not evolution? Like entropy? Or have you given that any thought? I don't know. Tell me what that is. Well, evolution is like when something gets older, how it its organs shrink and it's like the opposite of evolution. It's just this oh. thought that I've had a lot lately. I was just introduced to the word as an opposite to evolution, and I've thought a lot about it lately, and I was just wondering. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it does It does seem in a way that, um, you know, if you look at prototypical humans, we're much more animalist and much more um, maybe, you know, present in the world that is around us, whereas humans now are more digitally present, more intellectually aware, um, more sheltered from the animal world, less in touch with their animal selves. Um, so in that way, I guess, yeah, you could really, you could look at it as a, a, a step inward, but I would still say that was a step forward. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm there. I'm always excited by science and change and progress. And everything that we do, I think, is taking us toward the next exciting thing. And I'm optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about um, about autism. Weirdly, you know, there's a lot. There are a lot of positives that go along with it that uh, I think will become an amazing resource for the world. And then with that, maybe. What are your thoughts about fate and agency? And now I'm thinking in terms of your your newest book. Right. Well, my new book is How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky. And the, the way I have it set up, these two astronomers meet and fall in love, only to find out that their mothers knew each other as children, planned for them to be soulmates, and then orchestrated their meeting. Um, so the novel really does pit fate against science, um, belief against, um, planning and kind of questions this idea of what is true love, you know, what is love at first sight? Is that even a thing? Stupid. Um, and is it, or is it something you, well, I've been, I've been really antsy cause this is just such an interesting idea to me. The idea that you can walk into a room, see someone and know, yes. This is the person. Well, unfortunately, I would like to, as a scientifically minded person who likes um, math and order 
I would like to say that I don't believe in true love, but I, it happened to me. I met my husband on a sidewalk, and um, I knew almost immediately. I mean, I will say I knew immediately that I was going to marry him. Like, the, from the first time I saw him, I knew I was done. I was going to marry that guy, and uh, we we got married really fast. We've been married for 17 years. So I knew right away. Um, and I guess part of what made me write this book and part of why I question it so much is that my rational mind tells me, you think that's what happened, but that's not actually what happened. Like you selected him on some level. There was reason involved here. You selected this man to meet. It wasn't just like you were randomly walking down the sidewalk. I did want to meet him. I knew of him. And so, you know, there must have been a scheme here. There must have been, um, your brain was engaged. It wasn't just some, you know, throbbing cartoon heart popping out of your eyes and, <laughs> you know, rainbows shooting across the sky. <laughs> so, I mean, this book is part of, I guess, like questioning that for me. Like, am I completely stupid? Like, does this, could this really happen? And, that's what the characters have to deal with. In the book, I have um, my, the, the male lead is a, he's the dreamer, the believer. He believes in true love. He has visitations from God. He believes in astrology. And even though he's a, um, he's an astrophysicist, but he, he still visits astrologers. And um, in the book, Toledo is like this weird mix of, um, on the one hand, there's the Toledo Institute of Astronomy, which is this highly esteemed center of math and philosophy and um, for the world. And then on the other hand, there's kind of out in the swamps around Toledo, there's this burgeoning strangeness of witches and astrologers. And um, so he, he's kind of, he's the believer. And then Irene, the female character, is more the pragmatist, kind of a twist on the usual gender roles, I guess, where the tucked up guy meets right. the kooky girl that changes the world. But um, so she she has a harder time. Would you say that that you're more of the the left brain rationalist? I would I would like to be. <laughs> I aspire to be. I aspire to be that. But I think honestly. In this book, it's it's me separating out two parts of myself into a into male and female, and um, and then letting them try to figure it out. I can see myself in both of these characters, and I think a lot of us, like like we were talking about before, just having a binary choice: like, am I a believer or am I a pragmatist? Do I believe in faith or do I believe in science? Well, obviously, you know. I believe in science, but I go to an Episcopal church on Sunday and I pray and, you know, I can have both of those things in my brain at the same time. And so can a lot of people. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Uh, but for a book, for the purposes of a book, it's interesting to separate it out into two different characters and um, kind of let them battle it out. And do, in the book... Do the characters learn about the scheme, and you know, it, does that undo? They do. Yes, they. Well, they it, they learn about it, and um, for 
for Irene, then it it really causes her to question everything because then, of course, it's just at the moment when George has convinced her to go with it and this is something you deserve and let's just stop questioning. It's just at that moment that she she figures out, oh, wait, this is all a trick. And, of course, she um, then she's in full-on reverse and just wants to throw it out. It didn't mean anything. Yeah, it was just, it, well, that to her, to her, it's all, um, it, you know, then, then it is meaningless because, it, you know, she, it, she finally convinced herself to believe, but then, then it was based on nothing. Well, then this is fabulous because as far as star-crossed lovers go, what is the, the ultimate template of, like, love at first sight? It's Romeo and Juliet. Sure, and and so and then right. I wonder if if you know three or four hundred years of that gravity is actually you know creating something you know exploring the idea of true love is it is it real or is it just William Shakespeare? Right. Well, that's the question, and this and actually this this novel has a structure where. Um, you know, that's actually that's really Shakespearean. There, there's a storyline that goes through that's the mothers, um, the the scheming mothers and their relationship and how they plan and and reading reading through that storyline, the shape of the book is like is a tragedy. It ends in death. Um, their their um, fatal flaw brings down both their houses. They lose everything. Um, and they're ruined. If you and but reading from the point of view of the um, of the children of George and Irene, it's more of a classical comedy. You know, there's mistaken identity and masks are taken off and revealed, and um, there's even swordplay. You know, and uh, <laughs> different magical landscapes. Um, part of it takes place in a game world, and so. And then, and then in the in in the end, I won't tell you the end, but um, <laughs> there, there's different ways you can read it, you know. But it's definitely meant to be. I mean, there's even a balcony scene in the book. This is something that not a lot of people are picking up on with this novel. <laughs> um, but it it is it's it's very much Romeo and Juliet um, for a digital age. age, right? Yeah. What you're saying is that all romantic comedies would be better with robots. <laughs> Everything would be better with robots. <laughs> Did you read any Richard Bach as a young younger person? No. No. Okay, because for me, he typifies the notion of soulmates. And I don't know if there's a, a larger body of soulmate literature, but... I latched onto that stuff when I was in high school and it certainly it's interesting because he really sold a bill of goods. You know, it's like he really mm -hmm. created this body of work about he found the perfect woman and then he did a trilogy about how great their love was, you know, and it really, it spoke to me. And then years later I find out that he's on his third or fourth wife now, I think. Right. <laughs> Well, that kind of thing, like when it's the it's the whole like prince and princess line of crap that we feed kids, you know, 
like you're you're you have a soulmate out there. Somewhere somewhere out there, there's a soulmate that's just for you. So all you have to do in your young life, like probably before you're 25, ideally, would be to just locate that one person of all the billions of people out there that is fated to be yours and to make you truly happy. And if you don't experience some kind of, you know, mental fireworks and explosion of some mystical thing, you know, akin to like call on the road to Damascus, then, oh, sorry, you're just not fulfilled as a person and your love is kind of empty. But she's settled, so maybe you can take up cross-stitching. Like, <laughs> I don't accept that. I don't accept that. I mean, as a mother, I don't accept that for my kids. And for me, like, I, I said I fell in love at first sight. And I did, but I, I struggle still to think, like, how much of that was my decision. I knew what he was. I knew what his I knew his attributes, I knew what his plans were, I knew what kind of person he was. How much of that was me saying that? Like I picked that. I'm do I'm picking that one. Um, you know, and, and that would be completely rational. So even though it happened, you know, in the moment and kind of in a romantic, magical way, it was still a rational decision. I don't accept I'm not gonna tell my kids, like well, you should just do absolutely nothing and wait for a brick to fall out of the sky and hit you on the head and say, I'm your soulmate. It's just ridiculous. Um, and I, I think it's really damaging. I think it's damaging to marriages, too, because then, you know, once you get married and things are more difficult than they're supposed to be and you're wondering why, you know, the rainbow is fading and it's just not that way. You know, it's not like that. Which makes so, me, uh, kind of prompts me to want to talk about the characters that populate your worlds. And so maybe mm-hmm. uh, recently Terry Gross had David O. Russell on, and she was <laughs> kind of saying, oh, your characters are so operatic. You know, they're these big, loud, real human things. And, and I, I get the same impression that that your books are filled with people that... It makes me feel good about my own house. <laughs> they're authentic, but they definitely, you know, they're they're there, warts and all. Yeah. So those are the kind of people that interest me. I'm not interested in writing perfect people and perfect stories. I'm interested in weirdos and people that are off balance, people that are dealing with, you know, one leg shorter than the other in whatever metaphorical way. And those are the people I like. The new book has some real bazonkers characters in it. There's Kate Oakenshield, who is a mathematician, brilliant mathematician whose father raised her only hearing, he raised her on this kind of isolated um, state where she only listened to bird songs. So through only being exposed to the intervals of bird song and certain, you know, sonatas, he raised her with this very spiritual understanding of math that led her to become, to truly become like a brilliant uh, mathematician. So she's there and she kind of sings everything and still tweets and warbles and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then, um, and then the other one that's odd is um, Belion. Belion is a an immortal on a role playing game, so his name is Belion, Archmage of the Underdark, and his um, his avatar is part water buffalo, and he he's sort of standing, he sort of straddles the real world and the game world um, with his. I was playing with this idea, you know, it struck me, um, I used to play a lot of online games before I had kids, and they took up all my time, um, but I, I realized one time that I was remembering places I had been in games, even not, even just text-based games, as visually and as clearly as I was remembering real things that had happened to me in my life. Like, I'm thinking, oh, yes, I remember when I found that leather belt in the cobalt cave. Um, just, just like, and it was like, it was like a visual thing. Like, I felt visceral memory of that event. Um, and that just struck me. Like, I'm remembering this game world like I remember dreams I've had. Like, I remember, and I'm remembering dreams like I remember real events. So the kind of artificial, the, the, the division between how we interact and how we experience dreams, games, or like invented worlds like Second Life or um, whatever, uh, ga- dreams, games, and reality, all those things kind of blend together and start folding over each other in our memory to the point that privileging one over the other isn't necessarily helpful. You know, it's like, well, that didn't really happen. Well, why didn't it really happen? Did anything just really happen? Something that happened 20 years ago in a cave, in in a game, or in a dream, or in reality, I might not remember them any better, you know? Um, And it's always been interesting to me why people would say, like, well, I don't read dream sequences in novels, you know, because that's just, because it didn't really happen. Neither <laughs> like, did the book. Yeah. And you're reading a novel, which also didn't happen. Right. Like, we're going to take this paragraph, and this is some made-up nonsense. But the rest <laughs> of this book is completely real. Um, so that's kind of how I got interested in writing about these, you know, I guess, larger-than-life characters and populating them into this larger-than-life Toledo. You know, the Toledo in my book is kind of operatic in a way. There's secret nightclubs for astronomers, and there's star-watching boat tours on on, uh, the Maumee River. Lake Erie has narwhals in it that you can (laughs) swim with. And, uh, you know, I enjoy writing that way. I like reading books like that. They're more playful, and um, there's a lot of dark stuff in the book, and I think a smattering of narwhals is good for a balance. <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely sounds like we're moving in the direction of what the true nature of reality is. Like, what is... Okay. Yeah, and, and so where does... You know, with true love, you're saying, so we're making a decision based on more than just the senses that we rationally think we have. And so where does mm-hmm. coincidence fit into your life? 
Do you have any of those synchronicities that changed your path entirely? I think so. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say um, what they were looking back, but I definitely experienced synchronicity in the creative process and writing. Um, some things come in to the book and I don't know why and I just let it happen and then later on I figure out it's because of something that they were going to connect to later. So I think in my own mind, um, I do, and when I'm writing, I do try to let go of planning to a certain extent and scheming and I don't outline, I just write um, forward and allow those coincidences to shape the book. And over time and over layers of the book coming in, you know, it creates a level of meaning and connect, interconnectedness in the in the novel itself that I think I would not have if I planned everything out in advance in a rational way. And in the same way, like being open to coincidence and synchronicity, I think gives you opportunities in life that my husband and I kind of have this policy of like, say yes to things. Like if, if you're considering doing something, just do it, you know. Go the go to the event. Go meet the person. Do do everything you can do because you never know, you know, what'll lead to something else. And having experiences is better than not having experiences. And that kind of loss of control or like lack of a long term plan um, has made our lives very interesting. And just kind of let yourself go down those different roads and see see where they take you rather than trying to put you a map. I had kind of a strange coincidence recently. So, you know, it's summer, I'm watching movies, and I finally watched the big blockbuster Gravity. And as I'm watching it, I'm realizing I kind of know this plot. It it really reminded me of Shine, Shine, Shine. Did Did you have that experience? Yes, well, I loved that movie, and there were there were lots of moments in it where where I was like, oh my gosh, this like it, it just it felt very much like very Maxine. Yes, and uh, and her character felt Maxine too. But even when George Clooney shows up later on, I'm like, no right, way, like yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, they borrowed all that from me. <laughs> But that was that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Wonderful. You've been listening to Lydia Netzer on ThinkBook Radio, a production of thethinkbook.com. More information about the work of Mrs. Netzer can be found on her website, lydianetzer.com. For more information about the ThinkBook, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. I'm in love with that machine. So, she says it's time she goes, but wanted to be sure I know, she hopes we
no problem.